This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis is expected to sign the red flag gun bill into law. The legislature approved the controversial measure Monday. But that's not the end of the story. While supporters are convinced it would save lives, critics say it's unconstitutional. Dozens of sheriffs and county commissions around the state oppose the measure, including our guest, Weld County Sheriff Steve Reams. He says if necessary, he'll refuse to enforce it and risk sitting in his own jail. Sheriff, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. And allow me to set the scene a little first. This law would allow someone's guns to be seized temporarily if they're a risk to themselves or others. It's named for a Douglas County Sheriff's deputy, Zach Parrish. He was killed in 2017 when he and his fellow deputies were ambushed during a domestic violence call. As it happens, another deputy was injured that night. His name is Jeff Pelly, and his dad is the Boulder County Sheriff, Joe Pelly. Uh, Sheriff Pelly supports the red flag bill. He says it could have prevented what happened. The person who shot uh, those four deputies that morning had been in mental health treatment in the VA system up in Cheyenne, down in Parker. He had taken himself out of treatment and off of medications. I know his mother tried to hide his guns from him and couldn't. And there was nothing in place to keep him from buying the rifles that he used. And the bill's sponsor also says this would have saved Deputy Parrish's life. Do you take issue with that? Do you dispute that? You know, I think that's uh, that's a bit of an overreach. Um, you know, I think that's kind of having a, a little bit of a revisionist view of this. Um, I think that there are measures that could have been taken and uh, that we should still be taking as a as a state that would have addressed mental health concerns in this in this state and, quite frankly, what needs to be done in this country that probably would have helped um, create a much better resolution to that issue. But a red flag bill, I, I find a hard argument to say that that would have prevented uh, what happened that night. When you talk about a mental health solution, are you hinting at the possibility of involuntary commitments? Yeah, actually, um, you know, there's a there's a state statute now um, under the the 72 hour hold and treat law. Uh, it's 2765105. If somebody wants to look it up, uh, the problem with that bill that most law enforcement runs into is the the threshold to say that someone needs to to be uh, confined into in, into involuntary treatment is imminent, and imminent is a very high threshold because that means they're going to go commit violence right now, and uh, very it's very infrequent that when we contact a person who's in mental crisis we can we can um, we can prove that that person is an imminent threat. You have constitutional concerns about the red flag gun bill, but goodness, if you make uh, involuntary commitment easier. Uh, You're talking there not about the constitutional rights around someone's gun, but around someone's body, around someone's self. Sure. Uh, In either issue, we're talking about someone's safety, correct? Um, So the way I see that is if if we're trying to make a person safe, we're trying to make a person um, able to function in our society and not be a danger to themselves or others, we treat the person. But just taking someone's firearms away and leaving them in place doesn't solve the problem in my mind. It, it could actually make it worse uh, in some scenarios. And, you know, we're just we're kicking the can down the road to deal with the mental health issue. Let me say that neither of the sheriffs so closely connected to this, Sheriff Pelly or Douglas County Sheriff uh, Spurlock, who's also in favor, uh, neither of them agreed to come on the program live to discuss this. 
Uh, if a judge orders you to seize someone's guns, you say you're willing to defy that, perhaps be held in contempt of court. But isn't your sworn duty to uphold the law? So my oath uh, of office, uh, it reads that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution and laws of the state of Colorado. Um, obviously, that that creates a concern if if a law is adopted that I believe is in conflict with either the state constitution or the United States Constitution. It doesn't something have to be ruled unconstitutional first? Then- well, ideally, that would be the best best case scenario, and that's what I would like to see is that this uh, this this potential law be tried in the courts before it's ever enacted, and we're going to try to take that that legal action. But in uh, Weld County, you're in, saying. in Weld County or statewide, uh, depending on, on what sheriffs come on board. Let's talk about your constitutional concerns around a red flag gun bill. What bothers you the most? So I know that it, this seems to be centered around the Second Amendment, and I don't believe that that's where the argument should come from. Um, you know, the, the courts have proven time and time again that a person's Second Amendment rights can be restricted for certain issues, mental health issues um, or uh, previous criminal convictions. The concern with this particular law is that um, you're really eroding someone's fourth, fifth, and fourteenth amendments. In that, a petitioner, when they come in to apply for one of these red flag laws or one of these red flag orders, is uh, is working either directly with law enforcement or law enforcement and a judge or just the judge. In any in any event, the person whose guns are in question isn't at that court hearing, that initial court hearing, and if law enforcement is the applicant. Uh, not only can that order be issued, but a search warrant for the person's home can be issued at the same time based on the word of a third party. But supporters argue that if somebody has advanced warning that their gun is going to be seized, they might commit a violent crime or uh, suicide right then, which would defeat the purpose. I understand that argument. And, um, you know, if that were the case, I guess um, this provision that's in the Colorado law would have also existed in the 14 other states that have adopted the red flag law. Colorado's red flag law is not like those other 14 states. There are actually uh, a lot of similarities as we looked at these laws around sure. the states. There are a lot of similarities, but the, the biggest difference is that due process issue in that first hearing. Uh, in no in no other state uh, does that ex parte hearing and the uh, the taking of someone's guns function like it does in this Colorado bill. And yet, within 14 days, there has to be a hearing with that person present. That person has to be provided an attorney if they don't have one themselves. Mm-hmm. Throughout, if they decide to extend uh, the the taking, if you will, temporarily of the gun to. A, a year, essentially, that person can petition the court multiple times to say, I want the gun back. I'm healthy again. Seems as though there's a lot of due process baked into this, but not enough for you. Well, it's the it's the flow of the due process. And I think, um, you know, you say that the person can petition multiple times. They get the, the second hearing. Uh, they get a chance to tell the courts that they're not a, a significant risk to themselves or others by a higher evidentiary standard, which is clear and convincing. Uh, and then they get one other time to appeal that uh, that judgment in the course of that um, that that order. So if a judge issues that order for 364 days, the um, the respondent gets one one time to appeal that hearing. So they don't get multiple opportunities. They get one. If you didn't enforce this law in your county, in Weld County, and the worst happened, 
someone turned their gun on themselves or someone else. Are you willing to carry that liability? Well, I think a person's always responsible for their own actions, whether, um, you know, whether I go out and seize their guns or not, it still takes the person to commit the criminal act. So yes, but the point is that you might have intervened. And I'm saying if something had gone forward, you were asked to intervene and you didn't, is that a liability that you and that Weld County is willing to carry? I guess that's uh, that's an argument that some would make. I would still go back to what I said before. It's on the person. And we use uh, multiple other facets of the law to deal with people who are mentally ill right now. We will continue to do that. We will continue to do our due diligence. I just don't, uh, I don't see a lot of use of the red flag bill in order to actually help a person. We spoke to Governor Polis recently, and we asked him about sheriffs like yourself who oppose the red flag gun bill. If they want to be lawmakers, then, you know, sheriffs should run for state legislature, as some do. But your job as a sheriff is to enforce the law. The Democratic Attorney General Phil Weiser was a bit more forceful, saying at one point, sheriffs who don't enforce this should resign. Is this something you feel strong enough to resign over? No, I don't feel uh, I'm not going to resign. I'm doing what uh, I think is right by the citizens of Weld County. The support for my stance from the majority of people in Weld County has been very positive. And in fact, the the support that I've received from across the country has been overwhelmingly supportive. There have been people who are upset at my stance, and I get that. I understand that. Um, but most of those opinions uh, that are negative towards the stance I'm taking are all about, you know, the Second Amendment. It's not, it's not that they have read the bill and understand the Fourth, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendment challenges. Uh, I wonder if you have spoken with perhaps Sheriffs Pelly or Spurlock who see this very differently from you. And, and I'll note that Sheriff Spurlock is a Republican like yourself. Correct. I've had, um, I have a very good working relationship with both of them. I'm probably closer to Sheriff Spurlock in uh, conversation because of our, uh, the time that we came on as sheriffs together. Uh, we, we spoke in depth about this, uh, this law and, and as it was traveling through the House and the Senate. Uh, I spoke with Sheriff Spurlock multiple times. In fact, we spent about three days together at the County Sheriff's of Colorado for an executive board meeting where we discussed this on uh, virtually every break and in the evenings. And we talked about uh, ideally uh, changing the mental health hold statute would be what we what we would both like to see, but it didn't seem that uh, the legislature was for that. There's also agreement, I should say, from Sheriff Pelly on improvements needed in the state's mental health system. But I think they see this as a way uh, to um, intervene sooner and faster while deeper systemic changes are made. Um, thanks for being with us, Sheriff. I appreciate your sharing your perspective. You bet. Thanks for having me on. And again, I just want to reiterate, this isn't a Second Amendment issue. This is a constitutional issue. A different constitutional issue, you're saying. That is Steve Reams. He's the Weld County Sheriff, a Republican. And for more from supporters of this legislation, you can hear our recent conversation with Governor Jared Polis and a discussion with one of the bill's sponsors, Representative Tom Sullivan at CPR.org. He stepped into a job with a lot of baggage. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert Wilkie was nominated after White House Dr. Ronnie Jackson withdrew. The VA has struggled with access to care, veteran suicide, and the opioid epidemic. 
Robert Wilkie is an officer in the Air Force Reserve and served in the Navy Reserve. He's also had top civilian jobs in the Pentagon, White House, and Congress. Secretary Wilkie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with the VA Medical Center in Aurora. Uh, It opened shortly before you took office in 2018. More than a billion dollars over budget, five years behind schedule. Uh, There were immediate criticisms that it was too small for the demand. And federal lawmakers were so unhappy they stripped the VA of the authority to manage big projects like this. What are you doing to make sure veterans there are getting the care they need now? Well, the great thing about Colorado is that it's one of the fastest growing regions in the country when it comes to veterans. In the last year or so, I think our outpatient visits have grown by about 117,000, which means that we're putting more resources into uh, not only the Denver area, but eastern Colorado. And the other side of the equation is something that I've been working on in the eight months here, and that is the Mission Act, which is the largest, most comprehensive reform package in the history of the Department of Veterans Affairs, particularly for those veterans in rural areas of Colorado, because it says if VA cannot provide a service that a veteran needs in a timely manner, then that veteran has the option to go outside of our VA and get that care. Now, that, of course, means mounting a new relationship, a new system, new software, uh, and that's no small task. I want to bring you this question from the congressman who represents Aurora, where the regional VA hospital is located. So it comes from Jason Crow, a Democrat. We have repeatedly seen the administration suggest the idea of privatizing the Veterans Administration. How is the secretary going to implement the new regulations of the Mission Act while maintaining the integrity of a standalone, dedicated VA system? Well, the great thing about veterans is they vote with their feet. Um, If you look at the veteran satisfaction rate, we have numbers that we've never experienced in our history. Our veteran satisfaction rate when it comes to VA care sits around 89.7%. And I will go back to something that happened last year in December when the Annals of Internal Medicine said that VA health care is good or better than any health care in any region of the country. When it's available. Well, it is available most of the time. We do not sit separate and apart from the greater problems afflicting the American health system. Uh, America is wanting in terms of mental health professionals. America is wanting uh, in terms of primary care physicians. Uh, America is wanting in terms of nurses. The turnover at VA is actually lower than it is in the private sector. And for those in Colorado, we have same-day appointments not only for mental health but also for urgent care. And that is a tremendous move forward from the way things have been in the last few years. A review by the U.S. Digital Service is concerned that the the software the VA is developing to decide who's eligible for private medical care uh, is not going to work and could negatively affect the health care of some 75,000 veterans a day. That's according to an investigation by ProPublica. What's your take on that Mm -hmm. review? Well, I will refute everything in that uh, report. Uh, That's an interesting report that was done without discussing any of the issues 
with any senior leader at the Department of Veterans Affairs, including the people who actually handle our um, our information technology systems. For an outfit that's supposed to be all about technology, about 90% of that report was about policy, which I think if you look at their charter, they were not competent to do. What I'm going to again fall back on is what our veterans are saying to us. And our veterans are voting to use VA to go where people understand their culture and understand their language. I understand the VA hospital here in Colorado is planning to open a new spinal cord injury unit this year. Secretary, just briefly tell me about the need for that kind of care. I am the son of a gravely wounded combat soldier. The VA was originally established by President Lincoln to provide for those who were wounded in combat. Spinal cord injuries, for me, are the saddest aspects of this culture that we live in. Denver has been a leader, and the University of Colorado has been a partner with the Denver VA in establishing new protocols for the treatment of spinal cord injuries. Denver will be the place where veterans throughout the western United States come for their care. I've visited the Spinal Cord Injury Center. There's nothing like it. You can't find things like this at Stanford or at Johns Hopkins. And it's absolutely vital considering the type of injuries that we are seeing on the modern battlefield. The modern battlefield where soldiers are surviving wounds that in my father's day in Vietnam would have taken their lives. But we still have not turned the corner in terms of the science on spinal cord injuries. And I suppose fundamentally giving people back movement and sensation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Denver will be at the forefront of that, not only in terms of the actual medical facilities, but the rehabilitation facilities, the, the warm water pools, the electronic stimulation systems that we have, and very proud of what is going on in Denver. And uh, we also have a partnership there with the Department of Defense. Now, one other thing that Colorado is known for on the vanguard yeah. of is marijuana. Um, yes. And in a recent interview, you've said that opioid prescriptions provided by the VA have dropped 51 percent in just yes. the last year. Uh, yes. But at, at the same time, the VA does not plan on allowing medical marijuana prescriptions for veterans, despite its track record to treat right. chronic pain. Is that simply a matter of the federal uh, well, it is schedule? The federal law, uh-huh. and it's simple. It's very simple. It is the federal law. The other thing that I will say, and I said this in in testimony, is that uh, this is not the 1960s. We still have no idea the effects of a more potent type of marijuana that we're seeing in the country. And I'm not going to be in the position to replace the opioids that we are dispensing with, with a drug that we still have no idea what kind of effects it has on the brain. Uh, We are still uh, really in the early stages of determining that impact. But as you said, it is also against federal law. And as long as it is against federal law, it is up to the Congress to change the way we do things. Uh, Recently, the Trump administration put a renewed focus on addressing veteran suicide. Uh, The president signed an executive order recently, and the VA launched a campaign in seven states, including Colorado, called the Governor's Challenge. Absolutely. Uh, Just briefly before we go, how do you think it will make a difference? uh, 
Well, it is my honor to lead the president's task force on suicide prevention. It is one of the great tragedies in America that every day 20 veterans take their lives and 14 of those 20 are outside of the VA. So what this does is not only opens the aperture in terms of research and a whole health approach that includes a thorough evaluation of the mental health state of all of our veterans, but for me, it opens the aperture when it comes to providing the resources to states and localities so they can help us. Give you an example. With the idea that they're not all in the VA system, as you've said. Absolutely. In the state of Alaska, which is one place where many Americans go to separate themselves from society. And there's certainly parts in Colorado that I know of because of the time that I work for a major Colorado company. They have a similar situation. But in Alaska, more than half of the veterans are outside of the VA. I went up there in, in October and asked the Alaska Federation of Natives to double the number of tribal VA representatives that they have to help us find those veterans. Are we going to get to zero? No, because the majority of those who take their lives, sadly, are from the Vietnam era. So some of our veterans have had problems that began building when Lyndon Johnson was president. Mm. We're never going to be able to get to zero. But I think with a whole-of-government approach and a closer relationship with the states and localities, we can make a huge dent in this. And I'm very honored that the president allowed me to lead that effort. We have just a few seconds. There was a report in the Washington Post that you might be vying to be the next secretary of of defense. (laughs) The only thing I'm vying for is to be the best VA secretary I could be. And I will tell you, um, I've seen this military life from many angles as the son of a gravely wounded combat soldier, as an officer in both first the Navy and now the Air Force, and as a senior leader in the Pentagon. This is the world I grew up in. I go where they asked me to serve, and I am very honored to walk into this building every day and carry forth what I believe is the most noble mission in the federal government. Thanks for being with us, Secretary. All right. Well, thank you very much. Robert Wilkie is the U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs. He joined us from Washington. And we'll be back in the next half hour with ER visits related to cannabis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. People of the community of Littleton, the prayers of the American people are with you. Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Different ways of consuming marijuana come with different risks. Edibles versus smoking are more strongly linked with heart and psychiatric problems, according to researchers at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And they find that pot use overall sent nearly 10,000 people in Colorado to the ER between 2012 and 2016. Dr. Andrew Monti recently published these findings. He's an emergency medicine and toxicology specialist at UC Health, and he joins my colleague Avery Lill. Hi, Dr. Monti. Hi, Avery. How are you today? Doing well. You've been studying the negative effects of cannabis use 
Tell me, what symptoms are showing up in the ER when people have bad reactions to using marijuana? Yeah, it's a great question. Really, it depends upon the route of exposure. Let me just sort of say it very simply like that. Um, when people smoke cannabis and use it quite heavily, actually, there's a high rate of the syndrome called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, which is a cyclic vomiting syndrome. Whereas when people eat cannabis, actually, we're seeing more acute psychiatric visits than we might when people smoke uh, cannabis products. So it makes a difference whether you're smoking or eating cannabis. And the psychosis and the anxiety, are those causing heart problems? Yeah, so, you know, in small numbers, but absolutely. Um, any drug that increases your heart rate and um, potentially even gives you anxiety actually can lead to cardiac events. And so those events can be just simply a fast heart rate, but also you can get arrhythmias and even heart attacks. Wow. From the time that marijuana became legally recreational and legal recreationally in Colorado in 2012 and to the end of your study in 2016, cannabis-related ER visits went up quite a bit, three times. But you found more people suffered toxic reactions who had taken edibles than who'd smoked marijuana. And why is that? Yes, Avery. So um, the numbers of visits, the frequency of visits increased. However, actually, so did our emergency department visits. And so that number may not be, that increase may not be as dramatic as we may uh, think there. We're clearly seeing more visits due to cannabis products. And that would happen with any drug that has increased availability. So, for instance, if a new high blood pressure medicine is introduced into the community, then inevitably we see patients with adverse drug events um, in the emergency department due to that high blood pressure medicine. So, yes, as cannabis availability has increased, we've seen patients with adverse drug events from cannabis products. Um, You know, I would say that It really depends upon the route of exposure. And actually, what we tried to do was actually do some control for the amount of cannabis product in the community. And so that's where we found that the edibles end up with a higher rate of emergency department visits compared to inhaled products. And that is largely what your study centered on, the difference between edibles and smoking marijuana. Can you tell me more about why the route of exposure matters? What's the difference when you take it? Well, to be perfectly frank with you, nobody really totally knows. Um, You know, I I had the initial hypothesis when we started this study that people would be taking higher doses. So they would take one dose, not feel the effects, um, 30 minutes later, maybe take another one and then take another one. And the problem with edibles is that it doesn't peak until two to three hours after ingestion. Whereas when somebody smokes cannabis, they feel the effects almost right away and it peaks at about 30 minutes. And so I hypothesized, actually, that people would just be taking more and that would lead to more adverse drug events. I'm not sure that the data completely um, tells that story. I actually now think that it's simply because adverse uh, symptoms actually last longer. So when somebody has an acute psychiatric event where it may only last a few minutes when they smoke, with a cannabis edible, it may last several hours. And that leads to more opportunity to come to the emergency department. So somebody is having a psychiatric episode, they might be more, uh, they might be, have more anxiety because it's lasted so long. Um, Precisely right. And those heart problems and psychosis, that sounds really scary. But when people come into the ER, are most of those visits easily treatable? 
They are indeed, actually. So most of these patients go home very rapidly with very simple treatments, you know, maybe a little bit of fluid, occasionally medicines to help relax them. Um, however, there are severe events. And so we would always recommend that somebody goes to the emergency department if they're concerned or if they're having adverse symptoms, certainly psychosis, chest pain. Those things should bring patients to the emergency department. We at UC Health are happy to take care of people. And, you know, we, we um, want to talk to people about all drug use, including the pharmaceuticals. And we should note that deaths tied to cannabis are rare. There are only two that are confirmed, and both involved edible products. Yes, yeah, so, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, two young men jumped from balconies um, after consuming edibles, and then actually a, a third man um, shot his wife. That was a well-documented case as well. All of those involved edibles. And so that does raise the concern that edibles did potentially lead to more toxic effects in some people. Now, marijuana advocates do insist that pot is safe, but we also know that this really is new territory for researchers and even for the state which funded your study. What would you say to people who think that you simply cannot overdose on marijuana, that it is 100 percent safe? Well, it's just simply not true. Anything, um, you can overdose on anything. Even too much water can actually be toxic to you. And so any drug, if you get enough of it, uh, can actually have adverse events and potentially cause an overdose. You know, I will say that many thousands of people use cannabis safely. Um, We need to understand and respect that. But we also know that it's not completely safe, and we need to understand what those risks are. And so if people are going to use, they need to understand what those risks are and understand when it's uh, uh, pertinent for them to go to the emergency department. And as a doctor, are you concerned about the amount of THC in products these days? I am. And the reason for that is because actually it decreases your therapeutic window, so to speak. So, you know, the therapeutic window really is maximizing the effect that you want and decreasing the risk of adverse drug events. And so if you take a much higher dose, then that actually window becomes smaller and the risk for adverse drug events becomes higher. And so, yes, I think that there are several things that um, the state should look at in order to uh, decrease adverse drug events. The first and foremost is simply education about what those um, adverse events are, because I think that if users are educated about what those events are, then they can mitigate things themselves in a lot of respects. However, actually putting a max on the doses makes sense to me. And I think that we need to take a real hard look as to whether or not edible agents are appropriate for the recreational marketplace. You know, clearly there's um, a role for edibles for medicinal purposes, um, you know, in some conditions. But I'm not sure that that time course about when people get high and, um, and the, the increased risk of adverse drug events actually makes sense in the recreational marketplace. So you think that, I mean, are you suggesting a ban on edibles? Well, I think that, you know, this is one of those things that the Department of Public Health has to look at closely. Um, I think that actually I would consider that given the numbers of patients that I've seen in the recreational marketplace. Again, you know, cannabis edibles may have a role in medicinal treatment of some pain conditions and some other conditions. You know, at the UC... um, Uh, School of Medicine, there are many trials actually examining the role of cannabis and cannabidiol products for uh, medical reasons, Um, and I am in full support of that. Um, And in those cases, edibles may make sense. Thank you, Dr. Monty. Dr. Andrew Monty is an emergency medicine specialist at UC Health. 
His new study reveals that marijuana-related ER visits in Colorado rose dramatically between 2012 and 2016. He spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. The Rockies' home opener is Friday at Coors Field. The team's season opener was last week, and star pitcher Kyle Freeland helped bring home the win. The 25-year-old Denver native has become a local celebrity and established himself as one of the best pitchers in baseball. CPR's Vic Vela caught up with Freeland and asked him about all the attention, which included the ceremonial open three free throw, that is, at a Nuggets game. What's harder, stepping on the mound for a big game or having to hit one free throw at the Pepsi Center? Hitting one free throw, for sure. I mean, whenever, you know, as athletes, we step outside of our comfort zone, our element, um, into a different sport and have to do it in front of a crowd, it, it's kind of nerve-wracking. I was, I, I've never been so nervous in my life having to do that, and I was just so thankful that it went in. You're still so young, Kyle. How are you handling it? Because you've, you've become such a star in Denver, and, and by now everyone knows that you're the native son who's really uh, been a leader on this team. How do you manage to stay grounded when everyone wants to talk about Kyle Freeland? Uh, you know, just you know, remember where you came from. Uh, you know, remember why you played this game, everything like that. Um, I know this day and age, things can become a whirlwind. Things can get crazy very fast. Um, but remembering who you are, you know, what you stand for, all that, and just making sure that you know, no matter what happens, good or bad, that uh, you're playing this game for the right reasons. What's this off season been like? I'm sure you've been sort of the center of attention in a lot of ways, right? It's it's been a fun off season. You know, they would do a lot of stuff. You know, around Denver with with the Nuggets and everything, and then the Rockies. And yes, yeah, it's been pretty busy. You know, after the season that you know we had um, as an organization. And it was a really good season for Freeland. He broke the record for the best earned run average in Rockies history, and he guided his team to the playoffs. In the wild card game, he pitched one of the best games of his career in a Rockies win over the Cubs at Wrigley Field. But things ended in disappointment when the Rockies struggled to score runs in a season-ending series against the Brewers. I mean, you you always want to be the last team standing. Um, and whenever you're eliminated before that, it, it stinks. Um, you know, getting swept like that, uh, especially at home, in, in three games and, and everything like that where, you know, you envision it all going a completely different way and then it doesn't uh, go that way. Yeah, it's tough. It leaves a bad feeling in your, uh, a bad taste in your mouth. You don't like it. Uh, you wish you could redo it somehow. Um, but that's why we, we continue to play this game. That's why there's always another season. And that season starts now. The Rockies are trying to do something that no Rockies team in history has ever done, make the playoffs three years in a row. Freeland believes this team can do that and play deeper into the postseason this time. Knowing that we pretty much have the same you know, core group of guys uh, going out there day in, day out on the field, and knowing that you know, we want to continue to try and do something special just like every other organization wants to, but um, with the talent, skill level, and you know, drive that this team has, especially coming off these past two years, it's something that we know we're very capable of. How excited are you to take the mound at Coors Field uh, in April? Very excited. I can't, can't, wait to, can't wait to be home with my friends, family, you know, everyone in Denver supporting us, and uh, it's going to be exciting. CPR's Vic Fella speaking with Rockies pitcher Kyle Freeland. The team's home opener is Friday.
Denver singer-songwriter Anthony Ruptak was about to finish his debut album when someone broke into his home and stole his instruments, his songbooks, and the money he'd saved to make the record. Anthony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And take us through the night you discovered you'd been robbed. Uh, it was a horrible night. Um, my, I was, I was working at uh, the open mic that I run at, at Syntax, and um, I was getting getting started. And my girlfriend called me. Syntax is a venue. In it's Denver. a venue. I'm sorry. And uh, she she called me, and I, she knew I was working, so I, I had an idea that this had to be bad news. And she she asked, uh, "Did I leave?" a window open in the room or did I uh, scatter a bunch of things around my music room? And I was like, no, absolutely not. And then she noticed that there were doors and cabinets open that weren't in the morning. And she immediately like got this horrible feeling that welled up in her. And I immediately left the open mic and drove back to the house. And uh, yeah, somebody had uh, come in through the side window of our house in the clear middle of the day and took a, a lot of things a lot of things <laughs> instruments yeah they took um, pretty much all of my instruments um several of which were borrowed from friends and uh they just grabbed a, a satchel that had my harmonicas and worst of all my my songbooks everything i had written since like the age of 14 uh was oh. just gone so it was pretty horrible feeling no sleep that night and uh and the next uh, day <laughs> Uh, my girlfriend actually left the country for a trip that she had been planning. So I kind of just, I was just... You were there to fend for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and then they took the thing that artists never seem to have enough of, money. Yes. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, folks, never never keep your savings in cash. It's a pretty stupid idea. But I was uh, I was right at that point where I was ready to pay the studio for the uh, record that we'd recorded. And uh, that all that cash had disappeared. And I was I was basically due to pay like the next week. So... Gosh, the songbooks must have hurt especially bad. Yeah, still definitely does. Well, that could have ended the project, but support from the Denver music community got you back on your feet. You have finished this record. It's called A Place That Never Changes. my guest, Anthony Reptak. So tell us more about how you were able to finish the record after losing the instruments, the songbooks, the savings. So quite miraculously, um, I, I decided to put a, a post online just to say, hey, everybody, this this happened to us. And um, people at this point had been already very involved in that um, so many different people had lent me uh, instruments f for to make the record. With. Oh, were were loaned instruments stolen? Um, a couple, not not most that I okay. I had tracked most of what I needed to at that point and returned the instruments, but uh, as if you didn't feel crummy yeah, enough. Oh, absolutely. My gosh. Okay. So, um, 
I just put that post up, and then people in the comments were like, "You you have to you have to uh, put up a, a page where we can support you and help you and get this album back on track." Like a GoFundMe or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And um, I I've I've never been that person. You know, like I, I've kind of prided myself on. Um, you know, working my job and paying for my, my albums myself. But um, then I was like, I, I, I can't finish this and unless uh, I ask for some help. And so I I put up a goal um, on the GoFundMe with the sum of the items stolen and, and the, the savings that were stolen. And in in under 24 hours, it, oh, it, wow. it hit and exceeded that goal by just strangers, people, people in the Denver scene, just a, an immediate outpouring of of love from the community here and but people you didn't know yeah uh yeah one person i didn't know donated the highest amount somebody i've never met um how much was it it was 500 bucks wow <laughs> just crazy now i've not done a gofundme before yeah. unless you count our pledge drives um, <laughs> but do you get to keep the money above what you asked for yeah it, it wow. basically stops when you end it, and uh, by the end of the day, it had exceeded it. So I was like, "I got to cut this thing off. It's already, it's already exceeded it." Um, and then the next, you know, the next day, I was able to walk into the studio and pay for the entire album just from the love of the people. And uh, on that note, I just want to say, every single person who donated even a, a dime or more is listed on the interior album credits of this upcoming record very um, cool because it, it wouldn't have happened without the grace of others you were certainly not looking to make bank with this but people were generous no doubt this is your debut studio album you play 16 different instruments on it yeah uh none of which you actually owned at the time exactly true yeah i, I mean still you, don't <laughs> still don't well actually one guy left let me keep a sitar <laughs> is it unsettling to go into a studio with instruments that you hadn't played on before um, you know, I've been playing music since I was really little. Uh, I was homeschooled and had tons of time to just figure out instruments. And um, I uh, I wrote uh, parts for each individual uh, crazy bit that I had borrowed and learned it well enough to at least get it on the album. I'm not a professional in any of them by any means. But Where does one borrow a theremin these days? Oh, that is uh, courtesy of uh, Mr. Kurt Wallace from uh, the High Dive. <laughs> from the High Dive, yeah. <laughs> which is a bar and another venue in Denver. Yes. Uh, I know that you had to borrow an accordion. Yep. A mountain dulcimer. Yes, that was uh, courtesy of Mr. Chris Zacker of Levitt Pavilion, which is another big uh, new Denver venue. Yeah, out west of town. Yeah. A harmonium had to be borrowed. Yeah, and that so. was that was the uh, harmonium <laughs> of Andy Thomas's uh, wife, Jen, uh, from Andy Thomas Dust Heart, which is a band. So this is a, a testament to the fabric of the local music community. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this album tackles some serious themes. I think of the song Poltergeist. Oh, those strings on that track. My goodness. What's the song about? Um, this, this is a multi-themed song. It uh, deals with uh, um, kind of several issues. Uh, one being uh, kind of loss of salvation or loss of self. Um, another one being um, 
when I was when I was really little, my dad started taking me hunting, and so the child's mind trying to cope with like taking a taking a life or watching a life taken. Did you take a life when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I started hunting deer when I was like twelve, and uh, this is kind of a song about where to place that impossible uh, empathy and sorrow that you feel when something like that happens. Um, and then it also, uh, as I was writing it, um, a lot of different uh, school shootings were happening in the country, and so it's it's also a comparison of that child uh, holding a gun, uh, doing something traditional like hunting, and then the comparison to what's happening so frequently today, which is um, a child holding a gun in a school. That's a lot to weave in one song. Yeah, that's why it's seven and a half minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Streets of Gold is yeah. another track on this new album, Anthony Reptak. It's inspired by your work with refugees in Denver. Uh, before we hear it, maybe tell us how that experience shapes the song. Uh, I wrote this song the first day uh, we all started hearing about um, the administration trying to deport dreamers and trying to end the uh, DACA act. And, uh, that just kind of crushed my soul hearing it. You know, I was listening to, uh, your radio station and uh, the first day that that was announced, uh, I couldn't believe, uh, what I was hearing. Um, considering I, I work with, uh, uh, refugee families and kids and, um, and I've seen so much humanity and so much love and so much light in uh, the people that I've worked with. Um, and to to imagine uh, demonizing groups of people in any certain way or to imagine uh, placing any people group below another just seems absurd to me. So I had to write a uh, response song to it. Are you angry in this track? It sounds a bit like you might be screaming. Yeah, I'm incredibly angry. Um, any anyone who's uh, seen any of our live shows, you'll you'll hear me shouting quite a lot. And um, this is that is, good for your voice. It's actually how I warm up my voice. I just okay. scream. And <laughs> Some people say. I think I had to do vocal warm ups that were "I love my mom." You <laughs> you scream. Yeah, it's a different approach, and uh, I just tell whoever I'm with, hey, can you close your ears for a second? We're on our way to the show, and i got to get some crud out of there. <laughs> but talk, talk to me a bit about your vocal quality, especially on this record. Um, there's an, I don't quite know if the word otherworldliness hmm. to it. The is, it's not, is it processed at all? It's not processed at all. All it is is uh, doubled 
Um, it's uh, double. So I just sing over it twice. Um, Tell me about choosing that layering. Uh, well, I, I'm a huge uh, Elliot Smith fan, and I'm also incredibly uh, unconfident in my own uh, singing. So I think it helps <laughs> helps me kind of, if, if you put two kind of wavy lines together, you know, they kind of <laughs> they, they match up a little bit in the middle. You're insecure about your voice. I just don't. I don't I'm know. not insecure about your voice. <laughs> I've been enjoying these tracks. That's great to hear, man. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's easier for me, and I like the uh, I like the crisp aesthetic that it adds to the record. And it kind of sets the lyrics on top of everything else. We started this conversation talking about open mic nights in Denver, and you got your start at venues like Meadowlark, Mercury Cafe. We only have about thirty seconds, but are, are those good training grounds? I'd say the open mic is an invaluable uh, resource to any musician trying to start out and enter into a scene. Okay. Thanks for being with us, Anthony. Nice to meet you. I sure appreciate being here. Anthony Reptak speaking with me in November. You can see him Friday at Denver's Lost Lake Lounge. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.